Lord, we know that it is your power, the power of the gospel, which is able to save and able to grow and able to encourage and able to sustain. For you, Lord, are mighty, and you alone are mighty. And so as we continue in this letter, I thank you for the strength to be able to be here and to teach, and I pray that you would be honored in all that is taught. Lord, help us to hear it and give us ears to understand. In Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen. Well, this is part number five of the letter of James. So let's start out by reading the first 11 verses. Actually, the first 12 verses. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, and he is unstable in all his ways." Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich boast in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who stands or who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, I stopped there on purpose. And it's been two months since we talked about this letter, so I'll give us a little bit of a review of what we learned last time. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with it, those teachings are there on the church website or on our Facebook pages or on our YouTube channel. But we've learned that the command in the midst of suffering is joy, to count all things joy and to rejoice And to understand that the trials, as verse 17 teach us, are part of the every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And so we've also learned that our station or our steadfastness is not about our ability to stand firm, but about God's ability to keep us in Christ and our the gift of faith to see that our steadfastness is indeed the rock of our salvation, who is Jesus Christ. We've learned that wisdom is something that God gives to all who ask, all of His children. That He doesn't get on to us or say, well, I thought you'd never ask or withhold wisdom, but He does give wisdom. And we've learned that this wisdom is to teach us to understand and to know and to continually rest in the knowledge of His grace and the knowledge of the power of Christ. We learned two months ago that God... And granting wisdom helps us understand ourselves as well as Him. We understand who God is and what He's accomplished and His power. And we also understand where we are and what we are able to do, or otherwise what we are not able to do, and our powerlessness. And that's sort of where we left off. We need to realize that when we see verse 5 through verse 12 here, there is instruction and example and illustration all there that is going to lead us into the rest of this letter. It's a very short letter, 
um, though we could really stay in it for a very long time, we're going to continue in our path that we typically do on midweek, which is to read the letter and exposit it as we go. Verse 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. We've learned that we must also, verse 6, ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded and he is unstable in all his ways. And then verses 9, 10, and 11 uh, talk about a lowly brother and a rich brother. So the lowly brother will be a poor brother. And then it gives the illustration about how the sun burns up a flower and a plant and it dies and it scorches and its beauty is gone. So the rich man will also fade away. Then in verse 12, we see the promise that James reminds us of. And that is, the man who remains steadfast under trial, when he has stood the test, he receives the crown of life. He is blessed because God has promised to those who love him and are called according to his purpose this eternal life. So as a way of review in this text, to prepare us to where we are, I want to talk about tonight being double-minded, what it means and what it does for us, and what it depletes from our life as believers. I think I spoke uh, the last time we gathered here in the letter about the fact that James writes theologically as well as practically. In other words, he's going to give a lot of practical expressions to the church, things that they need to understand and apprehend and apply, and they need to do so because their joy is at stake. I also need to remind us, beloved, that we are learning out of an apostolic writing. We are reading the letter of the Apostle James to the churches. And these letters are written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God is teaching the church. And the church is learning. And the church is growing. And the church is remembering who she is and whose she is. And that when we read the instruction of the New Testament... We need to remember that without the body, the New Testament instruction has zero application. Zero application. In other words, we are to endure for the sake of the name of Christ, and we do so in the context of the local assembly, that the family of faith, through the good and the bad times, when things are going well and we love each other and when we're having strife, we are to stay together in the gospel. We are to stand firm in the sufficiency of God's grace. And we are to judge all things according to the Scripture as instructed us. That there is no reason, there is no application for a lone Christian to live out the book of James. There's no way possible for it to be done. Now, of course, we could check our attitudes, but the attitudes are checked so that the unity of the faith is continual and growing in the context of the local family of faith. This is not a way for us to live out in a social sense on social media. These things were not written so that we may learn how to write letters to one another or text or call or, or do our Zoom meetings. These things are done and written so that the local assembly, as it has been instructed and ordained and orchestrated and organized by the Lord Himself, as we see in 1 Corinthians, will give glory to His name. Now, some people may disagree with me, but you would have to disagree with all of the apostles for they write to the saints, to the churches, to the assemblies, which implies and requires the explicit reality that there is a gathered people who are in different places in life, who all claim the same gospel, who have elders who are affirmed by the body in which they serve, 
and servants, deacons who oversee the work of the ministry, that the word of the Lord would be taught so that the saints would be instructed and encouraged to do the work of the ministry as we see Paul writing to the people of Ephesus. And as we remember that, we need to remember that this wisdom that we have asked God for shows us who God is and what He has accomplished for us. And it shows us our powerlessness in every way. We need to be reminded that we are, just as the flowers of the field, a vapor. That our life is absolutely just a puff in the glimpse of eternity, just a small little breeze blowing through, ready to be extinguished. But in the context of the local Christian family, we have a great eternal preparation ahead of us. And so that we who are in the body, we who are gathering together, and those who cannot do so, who invite or are invited to partake as much as they can into our lives through other means who are in covenant with us, we need to realize that our relationship with one another is not a vapor. It is an eternal promise that we will be with Christ and that in that eternal glorified place of the new heavens and the new earth where we live, we will be together. And nothing glorifies and honors the Lord more in this present life than to be able to show through His power our unity and our love and our service to Him because of our unity and our love and our service to one another. We've learned already that Christ is our wisdom and that He is our righteousness. And that in the wisdom of God, we do not get answers outside of ourselves. As a matter of fact, it is not teaching us that we are looking for the answers of life's problems and complexities. But yet we are looking at and to the answer who is Jesus Christ, our righteousness. We are not effectuating God's purposes in our choices and actions. We are part of God's purposes in our choices and actions. So wisdom teaches us that we are powerless and that what we do or don't do is not going to, bring, not going to change the outcome of God's absolute sovereignty. God's will is done already on earth as it is in heaven. It is happening right now before us. Wisdom says wait and learn. Wait and see. Rest and know. And wisdom says, do not forsake that which I tell you is wise. Because if you do, the scripture says, don't expect anything from me because that which I have promised is yours. Wisdom rests and wait for it. Remember, we learned already that God in answering our prayers and our requests for wisdom does not just zap us with answers. And sometimes we see other people getting answers. We see other people getting resolution. We see other people having peace. And we wonder, well, where in the Lord, when is the Lord going to do this for me? It's not immediate. It is in the timing of the Lord and only in the timing of the Lord. But if we do not rest in this, we do not rest in the wisdom of Christ, we can expect nothing from God because we cannot affect our own outcomes. We've also learned that we are blessed by God because we are objects of mercy and grace. We are the objects of the work of God completely given to His elect children through the work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have eternal life. Therefore, we have the promise of a full life right here in the midst of the hardest times. We belong to Him and we know and can rest knowing that we are His and He will not leave us nor forsake us and that we can have such wisdom. And because we know that we can have wisdom in Christ, we can have hope. And in the midst of suffering, 
in the midst of trials, which is the context or the occasion from which this, for which this letter was written, we can have hope. And we can have wisdom to know what to do. And more importantly, we can have the wisdom to know who to view. Salvation and wisdom and faith and joy is all of God's business. I've said this before and I'll say it again. So that we know that the business of God is God's doing and God's doing is His to do and His timing. So steadfast living and standing firm and receiving the crown of righteousness is not something that we accomplish nor keep. But that it is being kept for us who we, being kept by the power of God, are being guarded in heaven for a great thing. Peter talks about it in his first epistle. So this business of God causes us to have the wisdom to understand that we put away the flesh. It's not about what we're supposed to get right. It's about who God is, and He has caused all things to be right according to the counsel of His will. And so we put put away the flesh in all parts, and we rest in the knowledge that God alone is supreme, and that God alone is sovereign, and that He cannot fail us. I thought of it this way this morning when I was looking at this again. I thought... Imagine if the worries and the fears and the doubts of life were like a sea. And we were tossed into this sea and told to have faith. Some people think faith is swimming and grabbing and groping for some rope of safety. Holding on to something that we may or may not know is there or looking to the right thing. And and with all effort and all strength against all possibilities, we've tried and finally succeed. That's not what faith is. Faith does not swim through worries and fears, groping for the safety of a handle. Faith sinks to the bottom of this sea and breathes deeply in the knowledge that our life is the breath of Christ. Faith rests in the drowning of the flesh. So we get direction. We get faith. Wisdom. And sometimes we miscalculate what it really is. Now I could go on and go back to Hebrews and preach about faith and we could talk about the philosophy of faith and the theology of faith and the doctrine they're teaching or the subject of faith. And we can pretend that we are smart, but ultimately we need to be wise in Christ rather than wise in our knowledge of the things of Christ. Because one sometimes does not lead to the other. Faith is truly resting in the sufficiency of God's promises. And that in of itself is a promise of God and is the power of God as a gift. It is not something we muster. We could also talk about what knowledge is. There's a lot of people with knowledge, but it doesn't mean they believe it. There's a lot of people with belief that have little knowledge. Some people are looking for discernment. Well, discernment. I have discernment. Well, what is discernment? I can discern food when it's bad because it may taste bad or smell bad. But that doesn't mean that everything that smells bad and tastes bad is bad because some people in some countries like delicacies that are rancid. Discernment, a lot of people think is wisdom. Wisdom, of course, discernment can be wisdom. But what is discernment really? Except that knowing what is the will of the Lord and understanding to rest in His time until He affects the outcome of His decrees in our temporary circumstances. We wait upon the Lord. We don't run with the Lord. But beloved, I see a mess in the name of discernment in our culture. 
I see it in the mess of our own lives, in my own life at times. Sometimes discernment seems like a compass that spins around in a circle. Discernment seems to spin on all points of a compass. And when it happens that way, it yields no trustworthy direction. Where am I supposed to be going? And we're looking like fools running around, going nowhere. Well, the Bible would call that double-mindedness. That when we see the compass, the Scripture, the Word, the Lord, the Spirit, the teaching, the understanding, the hope, the rest, the faith, the righteousness of God, the promises of God, and all the power therein, when we see those things sitting clearly, pointing straight to Christ, and we go, oh, we shake the compass. We thump it. We blow on it. We make sure that we're not near a magnet. And we think, well, certainly not that way. That's double-mindedness. Double-mindedness. Double-mindedness means a lot of things. Double-mindedness, by definition, means instable, instability, unstable. Divided loyalty. Saying that God is able to be one's discerning power, to be one's wisdom, but continuing to level one's own wisdom, reason, Argument, power, ability to affect the outcome is not wisdom. It's stupid. It is not faith. It is unbelief. And beloved, we are all guilty this very second of that very thing. But God is gracious and He gives wisdom without what? Without reproach. And when we trust in Him, we are lacking nothing. Well, double-mindedness can be understood as doubt. You ever have doubt? Doubt. Well, I know what the Bible teaches about God's promises. I know what the Scripture says about God's power. And I know that He's sovereign in all things. But I doubt that it's going to work out for my good. The Bible says that it would. The Bible says that it has. Double-minded is not just doubt. It's also hesitation. Mm. I know the Scripture teaches this. And God has called me here. That's my discernment. Oh, things aren't the way they're supposed to be. The things aren't the way I imagined them. Oh, woe is me. I better not do anything else again. Or maybe the Scripture says, Hey, do not forsake the gathering together as some are in the habit of doing. Maybe the Scripture says to put away all malice and envy. Maybe the Scripture says to not speak ill and to not use your tongue for cursing. Maybe the Scripture says these things and yet we go, Oh, I just want to... I know I shouldn't be doing these things, or I know that I should be doing these things. Maybe the Scripture, when it says to pray without ceasing, and to trust in the Lord, and to, and to rest, we hesitate. Or maybe we fear. Maybe we fear too much the outcome. Maybe we fear that the Lord is going to do something, and we're going to miss the boat. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna find ourselves not in the will of God. It's impossible. It's impossible. That's double-mindedness, fear. Paranoia is double-mindedness, worrying about what might be the contra-ideas of hypotheticals. Resting in worldliness with a divided loyalty. These things are double-mindedness. What does it mean to have a divided loyalty? Well, I'm going to trust in the Lord with all my heart. I'm going to love Him. I'm going to serve Him. I want to rest in Him. Oh, but... There are other things that I need to trust in. If I could just get this, I know the Lord would grant me peace. 
What may it be? We'll see some examples in just a minute. Sometimes we rest in worldliness. Sometimes we rest in relationships. Sometimes we rest in our own reason. But in the end of it all, double-mindedness is instability. Because all that is unstable. Being tossed around. Well, the Lord says this, the Lord brought this, the Lord told me this, I'm going here. Oh, no, 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 maybe not. I'm going here. Oh, maybe not. I'm changing my mind. I'm doing this. I don't know. I'm scared. I'm worried. I fear the Lord in a bad way. The Bible says that the double-minded person is unstable, and it just doesn't say unstable in in his thoughts. It doesn't say unstable in, in, in certain things. It says unstable in all His ways. I want you to think about that for a second. Because sometimes we, in our search for wisdom, refuse the wisdom of God, effectuate some other idea or some other outcome, and then we get to the point where we're going, okay, I was just unstable there. No, you're unstable in all your ways. We are unstable in all our ways. If Christ is not our stability, we are unstable because we are walking on sinking sand. We are walking on water without Christ there. We are trying to do that which God has not promised for us because God has promised He is our victory. He is our King. So the unstable unstable person in all his ways is sort of like someone with a split personality. And it's a split personality in relationships, it's a split personality in thinking, it's a split personality in all matters of life. Because what happens is, we, whatever we put top of mind, or whatever we're exposed to, seems to be the guiding force in our life. Well, I've got to go talk to Pastor Tippins, because whatever he says, I'll do. Well, that would be a very huge mistake. Well, I'll go talk to Mama. She'll tell me what to do. I'll get on the internet. They'll tell me what... I have a friend in such and such. He'll tell me what to do. And this goes on and on and on. And we expose ourselves to more and more so-called wisdom, more and more conversations, more and more relationships. And these ulterior or alternate ideas are constantly at war with the simple idea that Christ is our wisdom. That God has it. And so we're unstable in our choices. So then we're unstable and we make mistakes. Then we have failures. Then we change our mind again and again and again and again. Yeah, I do. The Lord's calling me X, Y, Z. Things get rough. The Lord's calling me ABC now. (laughs) It don't happen. It doesn't happen. People will argue that until they're blue in the face because they don't want to face the reality that they're not looking at the one who is our steadfast anchor. Remember, Jesus is the steadfast one. Jesus, remember, being steadfast is not a requisite of eternal life. Christ's steadfastness is the one who secured our eternal life. Jesus is our steadfast truth. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is the anchor of our souls. Jesus is our steadfast power. So then we know, we know then because of this, that we don't have to be unstable. We don't have to be double-minded. We know that there are two things that are the outcome of holding fast by faith, which is given by God, in the truth of Christ, and that is that our joy is full and our faith is strengthened. So what does that mean? That means we can thank God in the midst of all sorts of hells, 
and all sorts of devils and all sorts of experiences and all sorts of doubt and all sorts of divided loyalty and all sorts of fear and all sorts of worldliness and all sorts of bad relationships and all sorts of ridiculous reason and all sorts of hesitation and the list goes on. We can thank Him in the midst of these that He never fails. And He doesn't slide. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We're changing. He is not changing. So our joy, and it produces thanksgiving. We are thankful that God is our steadfast hope. And it strengthens our faith. And what does a strengthened faith look like? Is a strengthened faith never doubting, never being divided, never being fearful. No, a strength in faith is in the midst of the greatest fear and the greatest doubt, deeply breathing in the hope of Christ and sleeping. Let's give the example of Jesus in the boat. When His disciples are in the boat and Jesus is in the boat and the seas rage against them and they are in a swivet, as we call it here, whatever that means, and Jesus is asleep. And it unnerves them. <laughs> Why are you sleeping, Master? We're going to perish. They weren't going to perish. He had it. Our faith grows and we're able to rest. That's what faith is. Resting in the power and the promises and the provision of God in all things. So that even in our instability, God's love is stable. His power is stable. And when we are faithless, as Paul tells Timothy... He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Beloved, the Bible gives us instruction. The Bible says that God disciplines those He loves. Do you know what the active form of the idea of Christian discipline is? Discipleship. So people who say, I don't want to be disciplined, are saying, I reject the wisdom of Christ. I reject growing as a disciple of the Lord. They spit at Him. They insult Him. Beloved, let's not be that way. You see how we can expect nothing from our Father if we ask and then He gives and we just knock it away? It's an insult. But it's not for guilt that this is written. It's for correction. It's for discipleship. It's for discipline. And those who hate this discipline are not trusting in the power of God. They are despising the promises of God. But... As we keep going, as we keep looking, we will see. As we see in verse 8, he's unstable in all his ways. But James is going to give the remedy. James is going to show the difference. And it's not just in some of these examples that I've given. There's a lot of different ways of being double-minded. And we'll see them as we go. But I think in today's context, it's very important to call out some of these things. Because many of us live in a perpetual state of fear. James will give remedy. And the rest of this letter is going to show several ways in which one can show stability and trusting. First, he's saying in our trials, we suffer well knowing that Christ is our stable and steadfast anchor. Second, we're going to see here in verse 9, 10, and 11 that those who we suffer together with often are in different stations of life. And sometimes we see their complaints and we go, what are you fussing about? You got it made. Like the rich man who has his anxieties, his fears, his doubts, his divided loyalty, his paranoia, his relationship desires, his worldliness and his reason. 
which causes instability because he sees the promises of the world and he thinks, if I could just get this to work for me, then God will use it in this way. That's not how it works. And then the lowly man, the poor man. These people suffering in need of a lesser station. And that's where James begins to go as he moves in to the first and second, as he moves through the first and second chapters of this letter. It says there, let the lowly brother, what is the lowly brother in this context? The poor man, the man that has little. Let him boast in his exaltation. How is a poor man, lowly man, being exalted in Christ? Oh, I'm weak, I'm frail, I can't buy food, I can't buy clothes, I don't know where I'm going to live, I don't know what I'm going to do, I can't have this, I can't find that, I don't know what's happening. He's got a set of anxieties on him. He's, being, he's, being, he's going through tribulation now because of the faith. He's got even more stress on him and he's thinking, what am I supposed to do? And James is saying, steadfast, stand in the midst of the, the one who is your hope, who is Christ, who stood for you. Because he has given himself for you, you have been exalted. You have been risen up. You have been raised with Christ. You have been given life. Boast in that. Not in what you wish you had. And then the poor, the rich man, likewise, in the antithesis, like the flower who will fade away and never be seen again in its beauty, so the rich man in his wealth and possessions will also fade away. So the man of substance, the woman of stature, should not think himself better because both are from a place of humility. What he has in this life will perish, but who he is in Christ shall never die. And ultimately, the end of it all, what we see is that our simple love and our simple service, our forgiveness and patience with one another in the midst of all sorts of trials brings us to the place of joy. Blessed is the man, verse 12, who remains steadfast under trial. In other words, you stand with all conviction, killing the flesh, standing in the one who is our righteousness. And we will stand the test. We will receive the crown of life because God has promised that to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So this is the remedy and the blessing and the promise of double-mindedness. We focus on serving one another despite the environment and the experiences of our life. Beloved, do not forsake this because to do so is to forsake the very promises and the blessings of God. And as we look more then into this text, we will begin to see what the trials look like, where they come from, why they are effectual, and where we're supposed to keep our gaze. And then we see practical application to know that we really have nothing to be angry about, we have nothing to complain about, we have nothing to worry about, for Christ is our righteousness that even in the midst of all death, we have everything. And that God is working everything for our good according to His purposes and power. And beloved, if we can't receive this teaching and apply this teaching, we have no business worrying about the deeper things of Christ. We have no business worrying about doctrinal depth. If we can't do this, we can't rest. And if we can't rest, we can't live. And if we can't live, we can't pray. If we can't pray, we can't praise. And if we can't do that, then why are we here? Why are we together anyway? 
We're here to the praise of His glorious grace. So, beloved, I pray that as God has loved you, you shall love Him. What does it mean for those who love God? Those who love one another. Let's serve one another in the midst of this mutual trial. Let's serve one another in the midst of weak and strong moments. Let's love one another as unto Christ because and we do it to the least of these, we do it unto Him. Because Christ laid His life down for us. The God of all things becoming like a servant, obedient unto death on a cross, that He might atone and impute His righteousness to us as He took and imputed our sins to Himself. And it's in His name that we preach these things and for His purpose. Let's pray. We thank You, Lord, for this instruction. We thank You, Father, for just giving us hope in the midst of an incredibly difficult time. So as we finish our thoughts here, as we talk a little bit about what Your Word has taught us, Father, help us to be mindful that everyone is not in the same place that we are. Not everyone has the same trials. Not everyone has the same problems. And when we look at each other, Father, it's easy for us to say, well, their problems aren't as bad. I don't know why they're complaining. And have a sense of hierarchy or a sense of superiority spiritually because we're suffering in a greater way. But Lord, help us to put that down to know that none of us have suffered under Your wrath. But You have put Christ Jesus under Your wrath and You have given all of Your vengeance and justice and anger toward the sin of Your people on Him. And He spoke not a word in His own defense. Not my will but Yours be done, He said. And He cried out and He died. And He took up His life and He came back to this world glorified with the promise of hope for all who believe, for all who have been given to Him by You, Father. In Christ's name, Amen.